This is Bail Street. Crime, finance, and everything in between. Hosted by Ira Jettleson, bail bondsman to the stars, and Danny Moses of The Big Short fame. This is Bail Street. Welcome back to Bail Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson. And we've got a special guest on, Johnny Incompia. He's going to be with us. And Johnny's going to tell us about uh, how he was exonerated after he was convicted of murder uh, for a crime he never committed and spent 25 years incarcerated uh, and laid down and, and, and kept his hopes alive to finally come out and, and, and have to be exonerated for something he didn't commit. So Ira, late 80s, early 90s, Dinkins era, city, tons of crime. I know you weren't a bail bondsman yet, but you're obviously living, living in the area. All these wrongful convictions there turned out to be. What, what was going on? Well, you know, Danny, that's an amazing question because to be honest with you, I took over my business in 97 and, you know, going back into my business and being a bail bondsman, I realized that in the 89, the Central Park Five, in 1990, the Johnny Hing Campy story, and in 1991 was David Lemus, the Palladium story. So you realize that during that time, which was crazy as far as the tourists coming into New York and, and police officers saying, we have to arrest people uh, for crimes that didn't even really happen. I mean, we, I'm talking about seven or eight people that were incarcerated that did time that did not commit the crime and probably others that we don't know of that are going to start to come out right now. Ira, that's a great lead in. Johnny, we want to welcome you to Bale Street. We've had a lot of criminal justice people on our show. We've had to cut 50 guys on our show. I'm sure they're very aware of your story. But maybe we can just go back so that people that aren't familiar with your story, I'm sure they, a lot of people know it, will look it up, just a rough, you know, of what happened and what led you in, into prison. Um, then we can maybe talk a little bit from there. Sure. So um, I grew up uh, in Queens, New York, Bay Terrace, uh, Queens. I went to Bayside High School. I had just turned 18 years old and I, I was um, aspiring to be something working in the entertainment industry, either as a DJ, dancer, or even as a movie actor. And um, one night I was invited to go out with a group of friends and to Roseland, which was a very popular club in New York City. And uh, many people uh, were inviting friends of friends of friends of friends that several people that went out that night didn't even know of. I, I did know a small group of people and some of those people uh, didn't have enough money to get into a, to Roseland and they decided to commit a crime. And unfortunately the crime that they committed cost the life of a young tourist man of the name of Brian Watkins, whose family was visiting New York City at the time to attend the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. And that night, they happened to be at the subway platform because they decided to go out to eat dinner uh, in the village. And unfortunately, uh, Brian Watkins was stabbed in the chest and killed. Now, John, let me ask you a question. Obviously, when you got picked up and you got booked, um, who, was your, who was your first attorney? Was it a legal aid, 18 beat or private attorney? So um, I was appointed a legal aid, okay. but uh, my parents uh, had hired a private attorney and um, that private attorney took my case. Um, I had two private attorneys at the time, but uh, um, I came to realize many, many years later that uh, the second private attorney that I had uh, was very, very good friends with the judge and the DA himself. No. I didn't know this until... 25 years later. Of course, you, didn't, you, you wouldn't have known that. So, Johnny, just you were, you were picked up the next day, right? As you went in voluntarily, right? Or did they ask you to come in? No, 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 no. Okay. So, so let me just backtrack real quick um, yeah. just to get to um, um, 
why was there so much police pressure of how they came to arrest me at my home? Just keep in mind, as I believe all of us know, and anyone that doesn't know, in the 80s, there was a high crack epidemic uh, of drugs, uh, pandemic that was uh, going around, just not in New York, but throughout a lot of other places throughout the United States, an epidemic. And um, violence was up, uh, uh, homicides was up, burglaries, robberies, everything was skyrocket high. 1989, like you mentioned, the Central Park Five case happens. A, a white woman in Central Park gets raped. Next thing you know, a year later, my case happens. The police come to my house only because one of the individuals that I knew that I went out to with Roseland that night knew me. And when he got arrested, they asked him one question. And they asked him several questions, but the first question they asked him was, I need to know the names of the people that went out with you to Roseland that night. They right. never asked them, I need to know the names of the people that committed the crime with you. They just want to know who went out to Roseland with him that night. And because he knew me, he mentioned my name, and that's how they came to arrest me at my house. You went in there, and then what, what I found fascinating in a terrible way is that Carlos Gonzalez was the same detective on the Central Park Five that interrogated them and coerced a confession and did the same to you, if that's if I'm not mistaken, at least he was involved in that process. And so there was we didn't know yet, obviously, at the time that the Central Park Five were all innocent yet. But at the same time, there was a pattern developing that I'm sure there's other people, too, that he had an impact on. Right. And other detectives. So when people talk about police reform and it isn't just kneeling on someone's neck. Right. It's also interrogating people into submission. And that's as grave of a crime because it took 25 years of your life away. And so. It didn't kill you, but it could have, and you withstood it. But I guess I'd love to get your viewpoint on how you see police brutality, reconcile that with what happened to you and has happened to other people, and how you kind of view that. Is it one and the same? Is it different? Or is it the same type of corruption? And what are your thoughts about the police in general? So, you know, you touch on a, a great point here because you're speaking about um, someone that um, in my life played a major factor to why I was not wrongfully convicted, but intentionally convicted. And um, when you speak about Carlos Gonzalez, keep in mind, he was the leading detective, not just in the Central Park Five case, but also the leading detective in my case. So you would think, okay, one person already went through a big ordeal of this whole publicized media situation in New York City, and then to have another publicized case in front of him he would probably want to do things correctly and ethically the way he should do. Uh, but no, um, you know, his ego got to him. And instead of taking advantage of, of, the, of the way that he did with the Central Park Five, he took it even further to another level when it came to me. Because when I was interrogated, not only was I coerced, but I was physically coerced and psychologically coerced. So when I mean that I was physical, physically coerced, he had the detective in my room beat me up after I told him numerous times that I was innocent and that I had nothing to do with this crime because I was at a different so, uh, so a platform level. So when you speak about police corruption, yeah, you know, a kid like me growing up in Queens, New York, where I come from a family of immigrants, my mother, uh, comes from a Jewish background. Uh, uh, I'm Colombian, 
and I'm from on my father's side. And, you know, I'm here living in New York. My parents are raising me to trust authority, trust New York City police officers. And next thing you know, the one person that I think that would help me in this whole entire situation and take heed to what I'm saying is actually uh, intimidating me and threatening me and telling me that my only exit, my only way out of this is if that if I memorize a false confession. Right. So, you know, police corruption uh, for anyone that has never experienced or doesn't have any idea what to believe about it, it does exist and it exists heavily. I know I was going to have some questions about jail experience, but before we get there, just in terms of the trial, I, I saw also that they split you guys up into two different trials so that they couldn't hear the testimony of, of one of uh, the other people there who would have claimed your innocence. And so that hurt your ability, which just, I don't know, you know, I mentioned who your lawyers were, but that's just horrible that, uh, that obviously that, that happened and you were put in that type of situation and the evidence was already there from the very beginning. So from the day you got sentenced, and I think it was November of 1991, is that correct? When you were I sentenced? Got, uh, um, my trial ended in, um, if uh, my, my recollection serves me correctly, I think it was the, the beginning of December, um, they found us guilty, and I was sentenced in January of 1992. Okay, gotcha. So, and you went to which prison? Uh, well, routine is when you um when they take you out of Rikers Island, they send you up to a downstate correctional facility, which is the processing reception center for all New York State inmates. And after that, um, I stood there for three months because um I was classified still as an adolescent and not as an adult. So they sent me to Kaksaki Correctional Facility, which was known as Gladiator School for all the adolescents in New York. So you're 18 years old, Johnny, you're in Kasaki. Um, let me ask you a question. Let's go back one second. Did you have a criminal record ever before they picked you up that night? Was there anything in your, in your uh, criminal history that made them decide to do what they were doing? None at all. I, I, I never had any police contact, never been arrested. I had no criminal record. I was on the verge of going to college. Um, going to Bayside High School, um, like I said, I, 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 was, I was just trying to uh, live the life as everybody else, trying to make a career, and my career was in the entertainment industry at the time. You're so going to a concert at Roseland. You're going to have a good time on a you know, Friday night. You're sitting there, you go from your prom to Kasaki. You're in gladiator school up there, and believe me, we, I have some friends that were in Kasaki, Katsaki, however you want to say it, and... Um, and now you're sitting in there. So tell me what's going through your mind right now, knowing that you're an innocent guy. You're sitting in there, and the worst thing you could ever tell everybody when you're in jail is I'm innocent the first year or two while you're in there because you're trying to find your way. You're trying to see how you're going to survive, what you're going to do. You got your parents who are probably sick to their stomach. I know your brother. He was a young boy at the time. So tell me how you're now learning the facility and what you're doing to kind of maintain to survive. So uh, I'll give you a correlation of, of two different experiences that I had. When I, was, when I finally went through um, uh, arraignment, the correction officers in New York City took me out of my cell uh, twice in a process period of time, about 12 hours to make sure that I wasn't fed lunch or dinner. This was in um, what, what they called uh, um, the whole booking center right. in Manhattan, Central Booking, Yeah. Uh, after I was arraigned. Once I was taken to Rikers Island, 
I was sitting in the bullpen and the bullpen, what it is, is a cell and a reception center before they can finish processing you to make sure they house you. And when I was sitting in that bullpen, someone told me, they said, if you want to survive your entire time here in Rikers Island, you're going to have to fight. And the first thing in my mind, I was like, fight. Why do I have to fight? You know, I'm like, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to start problems with anyone over here. But when I went inside my first housing unit because of the publicity that was so heavily placed upon my case, that's what I had to do. I was being attacked by so many other inmates that were being sent by correction officers. So I actually had to defend myself. Now, hitherto, me being in CAC stacking now, you're speaking about racism. The racism that was involved with the correctional officers over there um, was so, so scary. I remember being in the reception center in Kaksaki, and next thing you know, I had a lieutenant, a sergeant, and four regular correction officers approach my cell door. And I was like, um, excuse me, yes, can I help you? And they said nothing to me, and they just stood there like for a long two minutes. And they were grilling me until one by one they were leaving. And then the lieutenant himself said, let's see if you survive here. That was the most scariest experience that I had from going into Rikers Island and going to my first state prison. After, keep in mind, the numerous fights I had just to defend myself. And now I'm seeing that the new fight that I'm having is with correction officers telling me, in different instances that no matter what takes place, if they want to, they could just kill me. Something similar to what the same detective was telling me when I was being interrogated to make this false confession in the first place. Wow. So, I mean, a lot of my friends, uh, Johnny, that um, did one, one of my buddies who's still inside now, another one that did 23 years, told me that most of the problems that he had after he was in for a period of time was what with the hacks was with the correction officers because they just, you know, they play by their own set of rules. So I can only imagine what you were going through. Johnny, from, from, from there, you were there and then you went to Fishkill or where, where, where did you go from there? No. So, um, um, when anybody that's inside, um, the New York state correctional department, um, people tend to travel a lot throughout different, correctional facilities. I definitely didn't want to travel throughout different correctional facilities the way many other people did for disciplinary reasons. Uh, so from CACSEC, I went to Sing Sing. From Sing Sing, I went to Greenhaven, Greenhaven, um, Southport, Southport, Clinton, Clinton, back to Sing Sing. And from Sing Sing, then I was, uh, my classification dropped. After 22 years, and being in a maximum security prison, finally dropped to medium security status, and I was uh, transferred to Fishkill Correctional Facility. Right, which must have seemed like the Ritz-Carlton relative to everything else that you had been going on in your life, which I'm sure was still horrid, but on a relative basis, you finally could probably breathe a little bit. But during that time period, so you're, you're fighting for your innocence, you have people that are trying to help you on the outside. Did you keep up hope? and faith, was there enough to go with your, your mother? And I know she, she's, she's inspired you, I've, I've seen those stories. What kept you going this whole time? That is a, a, a mitigating factor to what I testify every single day. 
of how I made it out alive. Um, everybody has their own story. Uh, for me, it definitely was family support. It was education. Um, it was really holding on to uh, my faith in God, uh, which was so many times, so many different years throughout uh, my prison experience of holding on basically to just a thread of hope, you know? And um, eventually, as, uh, uh, you know, my case gained so much momentum and interest after a journalist took on my case and started researching, uh, I gained a lot, a lot of support. But I, I, I will tell you this, you know, um, as much as, as I was trying to prove my innocence on the inside, as many times as I was trying to write letters, in so many letters, I received negative responses because at the time I did not have the financial resources either to hire an attorney or I did not have the evidence at the moment to prove my innocence. No one wanted to help me. No one wanted to represent me and to help me prove my innocence. So uh, as much as I was trying to keep the hope alive and trying to stay alive, you cannot imagine how every single day I used to wake up and I used to ask myself, was this going to be the day that I was going to let go and I was just going to kill myself? So you, you were sentenced to 25 years to life, correct? Yes. But you almost, you served almost the full time before they, before you got out, correct? You served 20. I, I, I served 25 years, one right. month and three days. <laughs> right. So, so that was Bill, Bill Hughes is the writer you were referring to. Uh, yes. Okay. And then Ron Kuby fought on your behalf, correct? Uh, correct. Okay. So it was a letter that started it around 2011-ish? So um, the, the way the story breaks Lost down it. was this. Um, I, um, after I had graduated from college, I went to college when I was in there and um, got my bachelor's degree. I got my master's degree. I, 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 uh, I always wanted to uh, be a part of this theater group program that they had was called RTA, which is known as Rehabilitation to the Arts. And being that I had, you know, my passion and background as a teenager that wanted to be in, in the entertainment industry, I joined the theater group. In the theater group, I met this woman of the name of Kim Breeden. Um, she was the woman that replaced uh, Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music in Broadway and in Mary Poppins. And she also sang for Nelson Mandela when he was released from prison, they personally requested her to sing from Nelson Mandela. Now keep in mind, I didn't know any of this about her. I was just working with her because at the time I had just been casted as Tony to, uh, for West Side Story inside of a maximum security prison. Amazing. And, and she's my vocal coach. She's working with me and she tells me, you know, there's something different about you compared to everybody else that I'm working here with. What is it about you? I, I just don't see you like everybody else. And I told don't worry, you know, let's just keep on focusing on this. Eventually we spoke about, you know, how I was innocent. And unbeknownst to me, she took it upon herself and she got a hold of Bill Hughes. And, and it was because of her that this whole chain started where Bill Hughes started investigating my case. Then all of a sudden, Bob Dennison, who was the ex-director, ex-commissioner of the New York State Division of Parole, also got involved in my case and uh, joined forces with Bill Hughes. And between the both of them, they just found like all this evidence uh, that uh, Ron Kuby uh, was able to utilize in order to prove my innocence. And all that being said, it still took two or three years, if not longer, 
to get a hearing, to get the judge to look at the case. And then I guess in late 2015, um, the judge vacated your conviction, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. And you were and you yeah. were released and you were released on a dollar bond. Did I read that correctly? So <laughs> And they were so, fighting you too, Johnny. They were fighting that. The DA's office was fighting like crazy in front of Padro. So uh, many people did not know this, Ira. Okay. When the judge wanted to release me, right? He wanted to release me on my own recognizance. Right. Like you said, the DA fought this. Why? Because all the time that I was living in the United States, I was living here um, as, as a permanent resident. Okay. Everyone in my family was a U.S. resident because I was born overseas. Right. Well, my brother, everybody else was born in the United States. So uh, prior, to this, prior to this happening to me, and I didn't know this was going to happen to me. My parents would constantly tell me, listen, it's time you become a U.S. citizen. I was like, what's the rush? I've been here my whole life. You know? Yeah. Next thing you know, this happens to me, right? So by law, anybody convicted of a felony, immigration automatically gives you a deportation order. And you that's get an exactly ice hold. Yep, you get an ice hold. Exactly. So they gave me a, 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 a deportation order. And when the judge decides to release me, the DA stands up and says, you can't release him because he has a deportation order. And the judge is like, what do you mean a deportation order? This has never happened to me in my courtroom. I, I don't know what to do. So Ron was like, Ron Kuby, my attorney, was like, well, judge, your honor, why don't you give him a dollar bail? But the reason why he said that is because there was an immigration attorney. Her name was Julie Goldberg. Okay. Great woman, great immigration attorney here in New York that took my case pro bono as well. And she was the one that told Ron and said, well, in case they give any problems, ask for a dollar bail. So the DA... Um, in the beginning was fighting this, but then all of a sudden he agreed to it. So yeah, give him a dollar bail. And I knew why he decided to do this. I knew why he agreed to this. And so did Ron. Nobody else knew why, but he was expecting because of the process, the court process, the DOC process, that if you give somebody a dollar bail with a deportation order, it triggers it. Spend, yeah. You're going to spend hours in the in, in the bullpen. in ice holder, yep, exactly. And then you're and you're gonna exactly, and they're gonna and you're never ever gonna get released. And ice is gonna detain you, and then they're gonna deport you. Exactly. So what did Julie Goldberg do? She got the judge's uh, decision, and she ran to an immigration judge, and she got the judge to rescind the decision because now I no longer had a conviction. Correct. My conviction was vacated, so she took it back to court. And when I walked out as a free man, the press and everybody in the world actually thought that I was walking out with a dollar bail. But in reality, I walked out as a free man. God bless. That's awesome. I mean, I can't believe everything you went through and the last step to come out of that courtroom, this DA is still trying to screw you in some form yes. or fashion. That's just, I mean, talk about the justice system. I know there's good people in the justice system in some places, like the judges that heard your case, the lawyers that took pro bono, people that work you know, in the ancillary areas, but man, I mean, you just must feel to, for you to come out whole on the other end, like you have, you can have great things happen to you. If there's any karma in, in this world, you're going to have great things come. So you were exonerated in 2017, correct? In early 2017, completely. Correct. So no record. So then you decided to sue the city in April, 2018. Now I was looking at the Central Park five deal, you know, they served, Obviously, their, their time, which was ranged, I think, from five to seven years, so one, maybe one case a little bit longer. Um, and they turned around, and Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg, would not settle with them. 
Uh, so it went on for years until de Blasio came in. And I believe they settled for $41 million um, with the city yes. and $3.9 million with the state. Now, I don't know how it gets all split up. I don't know if it was equal. But if that serves as any precursor or <laughs> to what you should be receiving, you served 25 years. Uh, clearly, you're innocent. Clearly, it's the same corruption that led to the pattern there of Carlos Gonzalez. I really hope that when the financial crisis, the world's in right now, the city's in, there's money to pay you what you are owed. And I know you filed in April 2018. I don't know how long the process takes. I'm, it's not my area, but I'm sure. But you're going to have people out there that are obviously going to be fighting for you. And you deserve every penny that's coming to you. It still won't be enough uh, to get back those 25 years. I'm sure with your attitude, you're going to make the most of, of your life. So I'm not, I'm not ending this conversation. I just wanted to fast forward to uh, what I believe and I hope that happens for you. Uh, and so I just wanted to. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I honestly, when I was fighting from the inside to prove my innocence, not one time was I ever thinking about money. Uh, was I thinking about, you know, uh, getting compensated? All I was ever thinking about was just proving my innocence and making it out alive. Uh, it wasn't until I got out that I realized how important my story was, not just to people in New York, but to the entire world, because you cannot imagine the amount of people that to this day continues to write me on social media and ask me for help. So, you know, spending 25 years in prison based on what I went through, the pain, um, the, 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 all the beatdowns that I took from correction officers to other inmates that were being sent by correction officers. There's not one cent, one penny that could bring back what me and my family went through. Um, and to this day, I mean, there should be a, a faster process for innocent people that come home in order to have something available for them in order to get started with their lives. And there isn't. The same way that there isn't a reentry program for exonerees, because all reentry programs are for people that uh, were convicted for crimes that they committed. You know, there's no actual support group out there to help people like me that went through this process. My family that was always there with me, no matter how much love and support they provided to me, they don't know the experience that I went through to say, hey, Johnny, this is what you need to do. Uh, this is the type of focus that you need to really look at now that you're out here. On the other hand, because they didn't have that, that guidance for me, um, um, I had to experience that myself. And just like everybody else, we all go through trial and error and we learn from it. Uh, but there's not one cent, one cent that could bring back those 25 years to live the life that I wanted to live before this had happened. Hey, hey Johnny, I got a couple questions. Um, first, I sympathize with you on what you just said as far as, I guess it's called PTSD. Um, I got a friend of mine that did 20, 21 years, six of it in the hole. Um, coming out, he had a problem actually reacclimating himself back into society, not understanding, um, you know, when the lights went out, um, to eating at a certain time, to, to, to major depression. So I can only imagine how you feel and, and what you went through, and you deserve everything you're going to get. Um, through your passage, through your time, through everything inside, you must have come across a lot of guys. And this is a lot of guys like you 
that, you know, everybody comes into prison and everybody allegedly claims they're innocent, you know, but you probably came across a lot of guys that were really innocent. And that's the first question I want to ask you. And the second question is why you're doing your time, which is, or, or laying down, whatever the people want to call it when they're inside, you know, what was the big break that you got where you finally felt like, Hey, I got a tiny bit of hope. I know it was the journalist, but you're sitting in your cell one day and you probably went through this all the time where people, you're probably saying, what's, what's this day going to be like? What's this day going to be like? Is, even though I got a little bit of hope, the door got shut a little bit. T- take me through that a little bit. I want to know a little bit about that. So, you know, you're absolutely correct. There, there is a, a misconception or a, a, of how people constantly are misusing uh, or telling other people and saying, you know, everybody in prison says that they're innocent. That's absolutely not true. Um, when I went in there, it was fascinating to me to realize that from the moment that I walked in, the majority of the people knew that I was either new or that I didn't belong in there. And how did they know this? They knew this because they were, uh, you know, second time felony offenders. Um, they had criminal records. They've been doing time for years. It wasn't the first time that they were in jail or in prison. So they were able to really tell who was who in there. And when you're innocent, trust me when I say this, people that are innocent can identify with each other. There's so many characteristics uh, about an innocent person that you can tell in order to identify with another innocent person and really, really speak the same language, speak the same lingo and really, really connect and say, you know what? Yeah, he's innocent just like me. Um, Where there are thousands of innocents uh, people that I met, I didn't meet thousands of innocent people, but I did meet uh, a great number of innocent people. And unfortunately, a lot of them um, did not receive the help that they should have received. Um, a lot of them um, were either functionally illiterate, so they didn't know how to write a letter in order to get help. They would ask other people help. And right. in prison, you ask other people for help. Um, there's only so far someone might go out of their way to help you because you know, they're, they're, they're doing time. There's doing time in there. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah. And it's sad. It's really sad because I even met someone and this is a true, true story. Person was um, fighting for his innocence and he received a a letter from the appellate division stating that the, his case was denied, his appeal was denied, and his mother came to visit him in 1994 in December for Christmas Day to bring him a package, food, underwear, clothing, just the basic necessities, only to be told by a lieutenant and other officers that her son had committed suicide. Like that was the worst piece of news that a mother can receive on Christmas Day. Um, so, um, I'm saying this because again, that could have been me. Of course. I know what it is to want to, um, give up and I didn't give up. I kept on fighting and fighting and fighting. And again, like I said to you numerous times, I didn't know if I was going to make it out alive, but I thank God that I did. So there are still many innocent people out there and something with this whole process needs to be changed with policy, with laws, that innocent people need to receive more help other than just waiting 
to have financial resources or waiting to have you know, the evidence to prove themselves. If an innocent person is saying that he's innocent, then immediately there should be some type of an investigation conducted by the courts or by the state government in order to look into their case rather than trying to just prosecute him. And if the, and if the evidence then shows that he is not innocent, then you go according with the trial process. But, um, you know, th that, that system doesn't exist. My second question is obviously, um, you know, hope. being inside and uh, obviously the hope, like you're sitting in your cell every day and, you know, you're going out to the yard. And yeah, what was, the, what was that one point that gave me that hope? Process, yeah, right? yeah, when did you feel maybe he's in the 13th year, in your 15th year, or your 17th year? Maybe because every single time, you know, everybody knows in our business as a, as a bail bondsman, you know, you don't tell somebody you're going to get out until the bond is actually done. And you see that person actually being released from custody. So you're sitting in there, and when's that first feeling like, Jesus fucking Christ, somebody actually is listening? So I think for me, it was like in two different instances, but in the second instance, it was the, the biggest one. And I'll tell you uh, real quickly. I had um, asked for help in the law library to write a motion um, for a FOIL request for New York City Police Department to give me everything that they had on their uh, DD5s, um, their lineups, pictures, everything. And they didn't want to give it to me. They just kept on denying and denying me. So I, I wrote a motion with the help of someone from the law library and the judge granted my motion. Wow. I was like the happiest guy in prison because that was like the very first time that I had received like you know, something from a judge in my favor, knowing that throughout that whole entire time, my appeals were all were, were, were denied as well. And, and, and then to only learn that the police department didn't want to uh, really abide by the judge's decision. Of course and they not. never, ever gave me none of my fault requests. So that was the first time. But the second time, I think I had maybe a good, I would say um, 17 years in prison. 17 years in prison where um, um, after my federal appeal was denied, the federal attorney, I had begged her, I had uh, beseeched her, implored her to take on my case pro bono, and she did. And she had Robert Morgenthau, who was the district attorney at yeah, the time, to, take my, uh, to reopen up my case, to review my case. So right. he did. That was the first time that my case was reopened up. And I was taken down to the district attorney's office to explain everything that happened to me in front of my attorney. Um, to only learn later on that um, the Robert Morgenthau had given my case back to the same prosecutor that prosecuted me at trial. So basically he just did this as a, as a protocol. Just a fluff and buff. Just a fluff That's and buff. That's it. That's yeah. it. And then he denied me, sent me back to Sing Sing where I was at at the time. Uh, but th that was the actual time that I said, wow, you know, s something can actually happen. Because the detectives that were scoring me back into the bullpens, they said, well, hey, listen, if everything that you just mentioned in there is true and we can verify it, I, I don't see you standing here for too long. But again, I didn't know that... Uh, the, D, the ADA just didn't run. Really Johnny, run. What, Johnny, what was it like with 9-11 happens and you're in prison? And I'm sure you had friends that were firefighters being from Bayside or from Queens. I'm sure you knew people. 
And I know you wanted to go out and probably at that point still fight for your country still. And you probably, you know, identified yourself as a patriot and right. And how, how do you, how do you deal with something like that inside? So it's funny that you mentioned that because when I was in my senior year in Bayside High School, I had uh, someone from the Marine, the Marine Corps actually take me out with the permission of the counselor from my classroom uh, and try to recruit me. And if I would have signed papers, I would have been in Desert Storm, which I had many, many friends from high school that actually did sign up and went to Desert Storm. Um, watching 9-11 in prison was a scary thing. Um, you know... Um, I, I didn't know what was happening. The world, everybody in prison didn't know what was happening. I was trying to get on the phone. We were trying to get across to our families. Uh, for some reason, the phones weren't working. Uh, my mother at the time was spending a lot of time in Manhattan. Um, it, you know, and just to see how the amount of people that died. Um, one of my friends, a good, good friend, you speak about a firefighter. He lives in Long Island to this day. His name is John Rivera, and um, he went out to help on 9-11. He was working in a, in a firehouse out in Brooklyn. Um, you know, so just the stories that I heard from him, even a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, he's a police officer. Uh, he just recently, recently retired. And it's funny because he used to tell me all the time, he says, Johnny, you know, not all of us are bad, uh, but yeah, a lot of us are really, really corrupted and uh, I'm, I'm it's really sad that you went through this, but just to hear, just to hear, regardless of what happened to me, to hear how they came forward to actually help other people out and try to save as many people. I think that for me, uh, as an American citizen, um, it was a good feeling. I felt very proud as a New Yorker because I'm a diehard New Yorker. And uh, I just wanted as many people to come out there as live alive as possible and to only find out that we had more than 5,000 people dead in New York City that went through that travesty, um, it, it was terrible, it was terrible. So you mentioned, you know, police uh, corruption. So you saw the George Floyd incident. There's obviously many of those types of incidents and they're happening more and more. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that particular case, if you wanna give your opinion on that, and then kind of the defunding or um, better training for police. What do you, you, you've lived it. So you've seen it from the inside. Um, what do you think? What are your thoughts there? So my, my, my personal opinion is that, you know, everybody takes an oath, okay, to hold a certain responsibility in whatever profession they go to work for. For someone to allow themselves to be influenced by others, to live now all of a sudden to a certain code, a blue code, where you turn a blind eye, whether you're working in the street or you're working behind the desk and you have to support each other and you know exactly what's taking place, even though you were not the person that placed your knee on that person's neck or pulled the trigger on someone's back, you're equally as guilty, especially as someone that is a law enforcement representing uh, our country's government. Our policies, they, they need to be rewritten. We need to have police that needs to go under new retraining. Uh, possibly every three years, they, they should be retrained. The police academy needs new structures. Um, the police officers 
need a, a different type of investigative unit that does not come from inside the police department um, of supervising and overlooking at them because they scrub everything behind the desk, uh, everything behind the, the carpet. Um, we need to ha hold every police officer that has a misbehavior to be held accountable financially. And if they commit a crime, they need to be uh, prosecuted where um, they need to be stripped from immunity because it serves no purpose why people that are being arrested for, innocent, for crimes that they never committed and they're saying that they're being innocent and yet they're being prosecuted whether because they're black, whether because they're Latino, whether because whatever it is, whether if it's racism or not, and yet someone with a badge is constantly killing someone and they're getting away with it. No, there's no equal justice here. In New York City, a, a police officer can commit a crime and he won't get questioned until 72 hours later. Yet if someone that's not a police officer commits a crime, immediately he has to be interrogated. And if he has to go through the process that I went through inside that Midtown North Police Department where I was beaten up, then yeah, he's gonna make a false confession as well. Because the methods of bringing a false confession to light is so easily done that they say, you don't have to be 15, 16, 17, or 18 years old to intimidate someone to do, give a false confession. You could be 50 years old, a strong male, well-built person. When you're in that interrogating room and they're working their work with you, trust me, they'll make you say anything that they want you to say. And that's how easy a false confession gets done with someone. But defunding the police, um, let me just say this. The police is absolutely needed. We need the police. Um, not everybody in the United States are angels. There are criminals in the United States. We do need police to help bring crime down. But at the same time, we need somebody supervising the police. We need to bring um, more structure to the police. We have, uh, we have, we spent with just $20 billion a year, we can eliminate homelessness throughout the whole United States. With $34 billion a year, we can provide a free college education to every single American citizen in the United States. That's $54 billion. Yet we spend $100 billion on police task force every single year that is not needed in order to exercise unlawful um, um, uh, uh, abuse on people in the United States. In fact, there was research that was conducted that in the 20th largest cities across the United States, they, re they, they found that the minimum standard guidelines were not being conducted in none of the police departments in the United States. So that says a lot about the behavior that is being conducted when you speak about putting a, a knee on George Floyd's neck and then killing him. Wow, I guess you've given us a lot of thought. <laughs> I guess, it, uh, well, I think you know what your calling is gonna be here through the next 40 years of your life for sure. Hey, so. Johnny, I, I just wanna ask one more, couple quick questions, because by the way, you're an excellent person to interview and I, and I am a huge fan. And, and like I said, I, I have a fond feeling for your brother. I got um, the goosebumps, by the way. But uh, did, the, did the Watkins family ever reach out to you? 
Wow, you know, um, Ira, um, you just brought chills to my body, Ira. Um, I, I believe it was the, the day after I was released. I was sitting in my parents' um, sofa, and um, I was given my first iPhone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm being taught how to use this. And then someone reaches out to me in Facebook. And they said that they were Brian Walken's best friend. Wow. And um, he said, first of all, I just want to deeply, deeply apologize to what happened to you. Um, I was unaware of all the information. Um, I'm Brian Walken's best friend. Um, I've been very, very good friends with his family. There's a lot of people out here in Utah that are now aware of your situation and they're happy that you're home. They're happy that the truth has come to light, but there's also some people in the Walkins family that are confused because now they're questioning uh, what, if everything that they were told by the district attorney's office in Manhattan was ever true wow. or, or, or is a lie. So, um, you know, we, we texted each other a few times and, um, at the end, the conclusion, he just told me, he said, Johnny, you know, um, I'm glad I got to meet you here. I hope I get to meet you one day and um, I'll just continue to pray for you. And I'm, uh, I just want you to know that um, you have my support. But as far as the Brian Watkins family themselves, I've never heard from them, um, never met them. Um, nothing whatsoever as far as communication from them. Johnny, so you jumped on Facebook. So are you involved in any uh, social media, um, anything we can mention here that, uh, that you're... Yeah, absolutely. About? So um, you can find me on my Facebook at Johnny Incapie. You can uh, find me in uh, my Instagram page, which is it's Johnny H 72 You can find me on my LinkedIn also as Johnny Incapie. And on Twitter as well, which is Johnny H72. Last question. Who's bought the movie rights and the book rights? Yeah, because, it's got to I mean, be a movie, Johnny. This is, a, this is a movie, Johnny. And you're right at the right, well, wrong place. You were at the wrong place, wrong time. You're at the right place, right time now. You're just what this country needs. You're what everyone needs. And I think people will rally behind you. So yes. tell me what's going on there. So when I, when I first got out, true story, um, I was flown to uh, California. I was flown out to L.A. like three times by Universal Studios. Uh, personally, um, they they wanted to make a movie uh, on my life story. It never happened. Um, deal didn't go through. Uh, but in the process of all that, I met a lot, a lot of great people through. Uh, um, since I've been home, I uh, be, became really, really good friends with Malik Yoba. Me and him uh, was in he was a, a guest on our show. He was, he was a guest a, on our show. Guest yeah. on our show. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, he's a really, really great guy. Um, yeah, did a, com uh, a commercial for um, um, a company called Suit Supply. I had a brief, brief entry in it. <laughs> it was really more about him. Um, uh, I was in a movie uh, called Mob Town with Jamie Lee Singler, Robert Davi, David Arquette. I also a brief, a brief, brief stint. Um, uh, I worked with Usher briefly on criminal justice reform. Uh, I worked and spoke uh, by giving a full recommendation with the governor of the state of Washington, Jay Inslee. Um, I've, I've testified at New York City Council on false confessions. I've testified and spoken to numerous senators in the New York State Legislature. And again, um, just um, worked and met great, great celebrities throughout this whole process. 
to try to make a difference and try to make a change when it comes to um, bringing the light to innocent people that are still in prison, which to this day, I've become a big advocate, a big activist. I'm working on several cases right now as we speak, some in California, some in Florida, uh, here in New York. Um, so, um, you know, people constantly, like I mentioned to you earlier before, people constantly reach out to me uh, on my social media, ask me for help. Fortunately, I can't help everybody, but I do recommend people to other people. And the ones that I can't help, uh, like I said, I'm helping right now. But it, it, it's a great feeling because um, if I would have had just a police officer in that police department at Midtown North, one police officer to just actually exercise his ethics as a police officer and do what was right and prevent Carlos Gonzalez and the rest of the detectives from making me do a false confession and doing it the way they, they did where I was beaten up, I would have never spent 25 years of my life in prison if somebody would have just stepped up and said, no, what you're doing is wrong. And if I would have just had someone else, regardless if that didn't take place, to come on and help me out through the beginning of this process, again, uh, I don't know if I, uh, if I would have spent all those years in prison. So I do think that um, uh, the message of my story and others' stories needs to get out there so people can learn about the bail process, criminal justice process, the police process, and the importance of people coming together, raising awareness, and wanting to help out to make a difference in people's lives and to ensure that we can prevent innocent people from going to prison. That's amazing. I'm 100% behind you, Johnny, man. And hopefully I can get this story to some people I know in the media, and maybe we can make that movie happen, or maybe we can get you on another couple different shows because you deserve it. And, you know, I'm a big fan. My buddy Danny's a big fan, and, uh, you know, Hopefully yeah. your life now takes a, a big, big, big turn and you get what you deserve, kid. Johnny, when we when this COVID situation dies down, let's definitely get together and we'll grab uh, a couple other friends. Malik Yobo will come. Yeah. He's, he's great. We hung out with him after too. So um, that that would be great. And anything we can do to help spread the word on this, I, I, I really feel like you could have a generational impact um at the right place at the right time danny ira uh thank you so much for reaching out to me uh, for having me on your show um i don't know how much time you guys have left me with me on your show but i will tell you this right um as much time as you want say what <laughs> we don't have time here do whatever the hell you want you're not doing time anymore yeah <laughs> um um you know i'm speaking to you guys right now from medellin colombia Okay, as a diehard New Yorker that I am, <laughs> right? Um, uh, my, my, I have a family here in Colombia, and I came here because um, I just have a newborn daughter. I have two daughters. Congratulations, Congratulations brother. And thank you so much. And a four-month-old. And um, I didn't know that this COVID situation was going <laughs> to happen. Next thing you know, I'm over here, and I'm stuck. So I've been stuck here for four months. Uh, but it's a good four months because, I'm, like I said, I'm spending it with my family. But the scary thing is that I don't know when I'm going to be able to get back to New York because right. the borders are closed here. The, the president is not trying to open up these borders anytime. So, so with that being said, just to backtrack, um, one of the reasons why I want to get back, because when I was in New York at the time, I had struck a deal with Univision Television. Uh, I became one of the first people 
in in the history of Univision to to do a a podcast show in Spanish on wrongful convictions. Because there's many many wrongful conviction shows in in English, but there's not one in Spanish. You're right. So I became the first one throughout the country to travel around the country and interview other Spanish-speaking exonerees whose stories were never told. Why? Because the media negated to interview them due to their language barrier. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, the sad news is that they, they I, I don't know what they're doing with it. They haven't released it. <laughs> right. It's, it's just crazy. So um, uh, I can't wait to, to get back because I have so many ideas. Like I said, my experience has inspired me to want to help people out, to um, want to work with so many other people, which I am right now. And I, I definitely want to uh, either get this book, get this movie, or get a show started because there's so much to be done and so many people to, uh, uh, that needs our help. Did you, sell your, did you sell your life rights? I mean, is there someone that's bought the rights to the movie? No, or? no, nobody has bought my life rights yet. No. Interesting. All right. All right let's we, talk about Danny, let's talk about that. We'll get we our agent. people. We'll get our we agent got, involved. We got our agent. Ira flew out to Hollywood for about four empty trips, too, so he knows, I, he knows that game. <laughs> I, ju- I just sold my life rights again, Johnny. I just sold my life rights again. <laughs> exactly. Well, Johnny, listen, let's definitely connect uh, outside, of the, outside of the podcast. I'll, I'll shoot you my Twitter handle uh, and all that jazz, and let's stay in touch. And Ira doesn't know how to use social media yet. This yeah, I don't pretty, know. This is pretty big for him even to be on this. This is incredible. Um, so, but no, I think your story is incredible. And I look forward to your, your, your day uh, when I'm going to smile when I see the New York Post headline about what, what's coming to you. And I know it's not about the money, but you know what, Johnny, in this world, I know what you're going to do with that money. You're going to improve other people's lives with it. And, and I can already sense that. And so it's, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be put to great use. And so um, we, you know, with that, Johnny, I can't thank you enough for coming on, on the show with us. And um, I'm a better person for having spoken with you for an hour. I, I really mean that. Um, hey, listen, and- guys, thank you so, so much again uh, for having me on the show. I really, really uh, appreciate this. Um, you know, Ira, my brother, s- speaks highly of you. Danny, I, I saw you in the movie. You were awesome. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You know, um, yeah. no, you know, and I say that as an actor because uh, when I was in prison, like I said, I did 15 years of theater in there. Um, and wow. my whole dream, like I said, was to be someone in the entertainment industry. But right now, uh, when it comes to acting, I don't want to be an actor just for the fame. I want to be a, a different type of actor. I want to become the first exoneree actor to have the platform in order to influence other celebrities to come and join this cause and making the difference. Because there are celebrities that are making a difference, but I don't feel that they're committing themselves 100% because they're committing themselves more to the career to, than anything else. So as an exoneree, as someone that's innocent that went through this, if I was to be that one big actor that gained them the momentum and and the attention of so many other people, whether it's in New York and Hollywood, I know for a fact that I can make more of a difference within the innocence community, you know? So, um, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I wish you had played me instead of the, the actor that played it. It much better. <laughs> I, I can already tell it would have gotten, it would have been much better for me. By the way, Ira, yeah, I maybe. love that picture on the uh, on the background of your wall. And Danny, I love the furniture. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I I just found myself in a room that was quiet, so I wouldn't I wouldn't take that as any 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 type of style that I have. But thank you for that, Johnny. Stay healthy, man, and we'll be seeing you talking to you soon, kid. Okay. Thank All you, right, Johnny. Man. All right, stay safe.
All right, buddy. That'll wrap it up for this episode of Bell Street. You can subscribe to our podcast at bellstreet.com or any other service that you use to download podcasts. We'll see you next time on Bell Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson.